you have your Bible with you this morning, let's turn to Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 13. Hear then the Word of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all of you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning from out of the community From out of the world, we have gathered together and into your presence. We've come to worship you. We've come to lift our hearts and our voices and our minds to you. Father, would you come near this morning, even now as we sit at your feet. We long for you to speak to us in the truth and the power of your word. That it may shape our hearts and our minds and call us forth into faithful, bold living for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In verse 11, he is quoting Psalm 117, where he says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. And in a nutshell, that's the point of the entire Bible. That is the point of creation, and it's the point of redemption. It's the point of of the whole Scripture as you get to Revelation, right? This is how it ends when you look at the book of Revelation and you see how it ends. God gives us a vision of a vast, multi-ethnic crowd gathered before His throne in worship. All peoples, all nations, In Revelation 14, 6, it talks about that gospel that is being given, the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, to every language, to every people. In Revelation 5, 9, it refers to that great crowd gathered before the throne. He says it's a crowd of people from every nation, from their ransomed, a people that belong to God, ransomed from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, that the people of God are this vast, multi-ethnic throng from every corner of the earth. And so we see in Revelation there, the end result is the certain accomplishment of God's eternal purpose that he, we just read in Psalms, that all the peoples will praise Him, that all the nations will praise Him. Habakkuk 2.14 gives that wonderful vision of the, the day is coming when the earth will be filled. Not this little nation or that little nation, not Israel over there or America over here, but the, the day is coming when the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Right? The glory of the Lord will be known. And we'll see as we go through this, the point in all of this is the glory of the Lord. And that it would cover the earth and that all people would see it, that all people would know him as their God and all peoples would praise him and live in a renewed relationship with him. All people praising his glory. This is the purpose of creation. It's, it's why you exist. It's why he made you to know him. And to see and experience his glory and all the goodness that that is, that we would experience the overflow of his goodness, that we would see his glory, that you would see it, and that you would praise him now and forever. Before Abraham, if we go back to the beginning from Revelation at the end to Abraham at the beginning, this is chapter 12 of Genesis, is when we're introduced to Abraham. And when God calls Abraham out at that time early in in the scripture there, there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile. There's no division like this in the world at that point. There's only people. There's just people. And at the time that God called Abraham out, Abraham was one of those people. He was just another Gentile, which is basically anybody who's not Jewish because there was no Israel at that time. So he's just another Gentile. He's just another person. He's a pagan, and God pulls him out. And he does create a nation. He called him out of the world. But why does he call him out of the world? He calls Abraham out of the world so that he can bring salvation to the world, to all of it to every corner of the earth, to the very ends of the earth, to every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, to all people. He calls Abraham out, not for Abraham's sake, not even for Israel's sake per se, but he calls Abraham out for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the world. Right? If you remember in Genesis chapter 12, that the first sentences that God speaks to Abraham, the first things that he says to him is this, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. Why? Because he just thinks Abraham's great? No, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And in all the families of the earth, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, he pulls Abraham out and he blesses him and he makes him great. What? He makes a nation out of him. He makes Israel, so to speak. But he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pull it out so that... Not that I just blessed you and your people. I did that so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families and nations of the world will be blessed. Isaiah 49, 6 says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob, Israel? To bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you, why Lord? I will make you a light for the nations. Why? So that my salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. God speaking in the prophet, God speaking in Isaiah, is giving this vision that is so much bigger. He says, I will regather Israel. I have a purpose for you. I have, I have called you out so that through you all the nations of the earth will come to know me. In other words, Israel is not an end in itself, but a vehicle. God's chosen vehicle to bring salvation to all peoples. 
which was always his goal and plan. And you see what he's accomplishing in Revelation, you know, is the accomplishment of his plan. And his plan was that there should be a vast, multi-ethnic throng gathered before his throne. It's why in Rome, Romans chapter 10, just a couple of chapters ago, leading here, Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. In Greek, you just need to think of anybody who's not Jewish. All the peoples, everybody else, the nations, the world. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all. God created all the earth. There's one Lord, one God, one King. There's not another one. Right? He's Lord of all the peoples. And while he calls Israel out for a time, he does it not as an end in itself, but as a means to a much bigger global plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the only Messiah. Right? The son of Abraham is the savior of the world. He is the hope of Jew and Gentile alike, which is what this passage is telling us. He's hope of Jew and Gentile alike. He is the hope of the world. And so the New Testament church is simply fulfilling God's purpose of gathering all peoples, Jew and Gentile, in the name of Christ into one vast throng that will stand before him on that day. He ransomed a people from all the ends of the earth to stand before him to the praise of his glory and his grace. Which is why as we move into our text in verse 7, the verse before our text where we ended last time, it said, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Wherever you come from, whatever nation, whatever ethnicity, whatever place, whatever tribe, whatever language you speak, whoever you are, whatever your background, welcome one another even as Christ has welcomed you. Right? Even as Christ has welcomed us in, he's welcomed them too, whoever they are. They are welcome. They are called. They belong. They are his purpose. The glory of God and the praise of all peoples. So Christians must welcome all other true Christians. Even if we're culturally or traditionally different, we've been talking about that, pews and pulpits and all the various ways that we may believe differently on certain things. He says, we are going to differ culturally and traditionally. We do that within Amer in the American church. There's a lot of difference in, tra in tradition and where we sit with some of those things and how things are culturally expressed. And as culture changes and things move on, there's always this tension. But he says... We are to welcome all true Christians in all these things, even where we are theologically different, when those theological differences are secondary or tertiary, and they're not the core of clear biblical issues. Even there, we should welcome one another. In other words, the church is a big tent for God's glory. And there's room in here for all kinds of people. God intends all the peoples to praise him, which is one reason that racism is such a great evil. And it's, and it's existed in various forms of prejudice throughout human history and throughout the world. And all those divisions that have been created by sin in the world, the gospel is healing. And as he brings all back together, as he says here, that all the peoples will praise him, will be his people, one people. There can be no division. And racism and all other kinds of prejudice are just a great evil and contrary to what God is trying to accomplish in gathering this vast, multi-ethnic throng that will worship him. That's why in Colossians 3.11, Paul says here, 
Whereas here, in Christ, he is saying, in the church, in Christ, here, there is no Greek, there is no Jew. That division between Greek and every other people, and between those people and those people, or those people and those people, right? whoever they are, circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're a barbarian, you're outside the bounds of the known civilized world, or you're a Scythian or a slave or free, whatever you were, he says he's trying to break down literally every barrier. Cultural, ethnic, economic, Christ is all. He's the only Savior for us all. He is all and He is in all. Every one of us. Every Christian, He's breaking down every ethnic, national, tribal division is abolished. And I always wonder how much to say and where to say it. But I will say that I believe that we should resist critical race theory. Which in some ways had the beginnings of it in the legal system seeking equal justice for all people of all color and all races, which is a good and right thing. If you haven't read the little book, Just Mercy, you should. It's also a movie, so if you're not into reading, watch the movie. Just Mercy, it's just in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s, a pursuit of equal justice. And it is a tragic thing, and it is a good thing to pursue that kind of thing, but the way it is being applied in our schools, in an institution, in business, in the military, and everywhere else, it creates division, it perpetuates racism. And we should work against it. You should be in your PTA, and you should get on the school board, and you should get in those places where there can be a light and darkness, and where there can be Christian influence toward unity and acceptance and inclusion. He says in verse 8, For I tell you, That Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show the truthfulness, God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Right? He He tells us that Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham that was promised to bless the nation, he became a servant to the Jews. And he says, why? Why did he do that? Why Israel? Why, you know, was there something special about it? The Old Testament goes to great lengths to say, no, there was nothing really special about them. They were small. They were weak. They weren't. God made a choice. Why? Why, Paul? And now he becomes a Jesus, comes as a servant of the Jews. And he, and he says, Jesus is from the Jews for two reasons. And one is to finish the work that he started with the Jews in the sense of being faithful, right? The first reason there in verse 8 is to show, to manifest God's truthfulness and faithfulness to the promises and the covenants that he made with Israel. God made promises and he made a covenant and he's going to keep it. And in Christ he keeps covenant with Israel. But then he says, and we can't miss, and, verse 9, and, second reason, in order that, so that he became a servant to Israel, to the Jews, so that Gentiles might Glorify God for his mercy, for the salvation of the world. God's truthfulness, he confirms his promises to the patriarchs, his faithfulness to the covenant. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God. Right? New Testament speaking of the promises is all the Old Testament promises, all the things that God has said and done, that for all the promises of God in the Old Testament are yes in Christ. 
their yes in him. That is why through him we utter again our amen to the God for his glory. Right? It's all for his glory, the keeping of his covenant so that ultimately through Abraham and his people the whole world would come to salvation for his glory. He keeps his promises with Israel. But these covenants and promises are not an end in themselves. They're the means by which God brings salvation to all people. Right? The scripture doesn't say that God so loved Israel that he sent his only son. Right? It says God so loved the world. Was that a new thing? He just thought of, oh, there's a whole world out there beyond Israel. I, I'll, no, this is the love of the world that he created. It is always his intention to save the nations, the world that he has made from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And he creates Israel. He calls Abraham out and blesses him to be a blessing, to open the way, to be the vehicle, the God-ordained, chosen vehicle to bring salvation to his whole world. Which is what we see in the end in that great picture in Revelation. He sent his only son into the world that whosoever should believe, whoever believes, anyone believes, everyone who believes, would not perish but have life. Whosoever, Gentile or Jew, rich or poor, black or white, whatever nation, whatever ethnicity, whatever kind of person you are, whoever. See it in Philippians chapter 2, 7 to 11, where we're told that he, he, Jesus, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, so we're told right here, a servant of Israel. And he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. What service did he do? What was his service to Israel? And it says he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death, even to death on a cross, to die for our sins, to pay our penalty. And it is therefore that God has exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee, in every tongue, in this vast planet, in these billions of people, God is a global God. He has always had a global purpose, and his salvation has been driven. It, it narrowed down to Israel so that it could broaden out in Christ, the Messiah, to the glory of God. Every knee will bow, right? And there's again how he ends, to the glory of God the Father. It is to his glory that every tongue and every tribe and every nation will praise him. For the sake of the nations. And so in verses 9 to 12, Jesus is the servant of Israel for all nations, that they would glorify him for his mercy. Isn't that what it says at the end of verse 9? In order that the Gentiles might glorify him for his mercy. He doesn't have a covenant with Gentiles. Right? See, when he made a covenant in a relationship with Israel. So his, his keeping of his providence becomes a servant of them to show his truthfulness, right? And to confirm his promises to the patriarchs. But to the rest of the nations, he didn't make any covenants and promises like that. We have lots of prophecies, and we've been talking about some of them. We're about to look at four more that Paul gives us here. There are lots of prophecies, but there's no covenantal 
promises made, no expectation per se at this stage of the game. It's mercy. It's mercy with Israel. That's why he makes a covenant. But it's mercy with the nations because we never got a covenant until Christ. And so he points, Paul again gives four quotes from every part of the Old Testament. The the Jews thought of the Bible in three pieces, the law and the prophets and the writings. The law were the first five books of Moses, the prophets, you know who they are. Everything in between is the writings, the histories and the poetry, Psalms and Proverbs and such. And he pulls a quote from every part of it. Right? There's one from, it's like basically all of the scripture and all of its parts make the same testimony and the same prophecies to enforce God's clear purpose, his clear global purpose from the very beginning to include all nations, all peoples as part of his worshiping community, this globally inclusive people of God. And so all four of these verses refer to Gentiles. Gentiles being all non-Jewish human beings, right? Human beings that aren't Jewish are Gentile, whether you like it or not, I guess. And so the first one in verse 9, he says, Psalm of David, verses 1849, Psalm 1849, this is David. I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Among the Gentiles. David sees it, longs for it wants it. We see in verse 10, he goes back to Moses, so he goes back to the law. And Moses here invites all the nations to join in worship. Deuteronomy 32, 43, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. It's coming. It's not happening yet, but even in Deuteronomy, there is this sense Psalm, verse 11, Psalm 117, we started with this, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples praise him. This is creation's purpose. Or Isaiah 11, he goes to the prophets, Isaiah 11:10. the root of Jesse will come. Jesse is David's father. The son, it will be a son of David, a son of Abraham, who's a son of David, who is the Christ. He says the root of Jesse will come and he will arise and rule the Gentiles. The prophets look and see. He's not just going to be a king in Israel or a king in Jerusalem or something. No, he's coming to rule the earth. The the earth is the Lord's and all therein is his. And he intends, it falls into sin and rebels, but he intends to rule all of it. The root of Jesse will come. He who arises to rule the Gentiles and in him, in this son of David, the Messiah, The Gentiles are going to hope. They have the same hope as Israel. There's only one hope for the world. God's revealed plan is that the son of David, the son of Abraham, will arise as a ruler of all the nations, and all the nations will put their hope in him. Do you see the implications of this for unity in the church? Can you see where he... He's so serious in all of Romans 14 that we've been reading in the first part of 15 where he's talking about unity in the life of the church and letting the first things be first and second things second, you know, of, of allowing uh, the, the, all of those smaller differences to diminish underneath this greater vision of what God is doing and creating a people together and that what God has joined together, let no man or woman put asunder to bring division in the church is a serious thing. You could do this from Old Testament through the New Testament. The 
the injunctions against division in the life of the church. And one of the things that we take vows, whether it's your vow for membership that every one of you took if you joined the church that I take, is that we will pursue the peace and purity of the church. The implications for unity, despite wide diversity, peoples of all traditions and backgrounds. And Paul goes from here to prayer. He did it last time. He does it again this time as he moves into verse 13. May the God of hope then fill you, church, Christian, with all joy, with all peace in your believing, in your faith, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. He prays. It flows naturally from his heart. He, he mentions hope in the last part of the verse. In him, Gentiles will hope. All the nations will hope. All people are going to hope in the Messiah. And even as, he's, as he says this, and he, and he opens up the gospel to the whole world, believing that he is for every nation and every tongue, and then he He just moves into prayer. You are the God of hope. You are the giver of all hope. What he's been prophesying throughout the Old Testament, what Paul has been pulling up in terms of prophecy, what he's been teaching in terms of unity and in terms of God's purpose for for all peoples to be joined together despite our great diversity into one vast, unified, God-glorifying, praising people. And he prays for it. Right? He's been talking about it, now he asks for it. May the God of hope pour out. When he says, fill you, you know, it means to, the, to your capacity. If you were a pitcher or a glass, he would fill you to capacity that you would be filled with joy and peace and believing that your salvation, your inclusion in Christ, your inclusion into his community, that your inclusion into that great throng on that, de- throng on that day, that, that our inclusion would overflow in us in joy in peace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he always brings in and says, it's not something you're going to drum up. It's not something you can work up or by your bootstraps. By the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts will abound with hope, hope for the nations, hope for each other, hope for peace in the church, hope that the gospel will continue to do what God has sent the gospel to do, which is to gather the nations to himself. He said back in chapter 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is a matter of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he's saying something very similar here. The kingdom is not just a matter of peace and joy. He wants us to be filled with that same peace and joy. Here, what the kingdom is a matter of, not the, the, he says, not meat and drink, not the other smaller things we argue about. It's a matter of peace and joy. Now may God fill you with it. Now may God overflow so that your cups are all overflowing with it. So that whosoever believes, may the Father manifest these realities of the kingdom. That's what Paul is asking. The kingdom is like that. Father, manifest it in your people. Pour it out into your people. Fill all of your people so that all of us together will abound with this hope. Our shared hope, our shared submission to the king, it overrules all of our minor differences. 
which is why when I've been to Africa, you join in worship, very different, very culturally. You can go downtown into a church and they'll worship very different. But it's that unity, the, the worship that we share, the God that we share, there is a common, right, hope and a shared submission to Christ that we belong together. I've been to India and to Central America and to Africa and to London, and I've been here and I've been in New Jersey and I've been in Canada and I've been in wherever I go. There's one church. So different. Spurgeon says, and this is to say the differences that you and I deal with (laughs) shouldn't get in the way. Spurgeon says it this way, that what we're talking about, he says it points to the true remedy for religious controversy, chapter 14. If you fill the contending parties, it's you and me who get contending about all kinds of things, but if you fill those parties with a fuller spiritual life, what? Peace and joy in believing and the hope that is ours in him. If you fill the contending parties with a fuller spiritual life and the ground of their differences will simply begin to dwindle and look even contemptible if they cause division in Christ's body. He said, when the tide rises, the little pools on the rocks are all merged into one. When the tide of joy and peace rises and fills his people. I love that image. When the tide rises, all those little tide pools of whatever just get swallowed in the ocean of his grace. Differences diminish and even disappear. My friends, Jesus is the hope of all people. He's the hope of our community. We live in a world that is discovering what Ephesians 2.12 says, that having no hope and without God in the world. It's describing people who don't know Christ, and he says, when you, where there is no God, there is no hope. And the world discovers it the hard way, time and again. The world is manifesting that truth even now. We've been plagued by a pandemic, politically polarized, or growing racial tensions, or sexual confusion, genders are becoming blurred, economically there's inflation and recession, there's a war in Europe, there's a threat even now of nuclear conflict. But you and I serve a God of hope. We're hope dealers. Right? We're, we're dealers of hope. In a world that is like this, we tend to let that, that pressure come in and for us. But we've been not given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and of a sound mind. In the midst of all these things, we of all people have good news. We have a gospel of peace and hope. We have a life-saving, life-changing Savior. If someone were to ask me, I'll turn there as we move into talking about this next week and the weeks that follow. If you're asking me, why are you attempting to build when there's so much uncertainty in the world. That's when the church needs to build. Right? We, we are that beacon in the midst of it. The answer is, this is corny, and I think I'm told often or not, I'm often corny, but when the going gets tough, the church gets going. Right? And there, there has to be a truth in that. It's been historically true, whether it's under the Romans in the first centuries or throughout history, that when the going gets tough, the church 
rises up. The church is there because we are the ones who have hope. We're the ones who don't have to be afraid. We're the ones who know where we're going. We're the ones who know we have a heavenly Father who cares for us and meets our needs. We're the one who doesn't have to live under the pressures that the world who has no God have no hope. Opportunity is knocking. God is at work. That's what the leadership feels. The opportunity is knocking. He is bringing in families and young children. The church is growing in the midst of all this uncertainty. Moments of crisis are moments of opportunity. They're they're gospel moments. And it's not a time for the church to retreat. It's a time for the church to advance. We're hope dealers. In the midst of a crooked generation, Philippians 2 says, we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's chapter 14. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God with joy and peace rising without blemish in the midst of this generation so that among them you will shine. Will the church rise up and shine? A light in the darkness. Jesus does not wait until the ideal worldly conditions to build his church. He's been building his church through every ugly dispensation this world has ever faced in the sense of he builds his church against the very gates of hell and he just keeps building it. He keeps saving through his mercy. And if you and I, HPC, if you and I seek first the kingdom of God, The promise is that everything else will be added unto us. And there's a sense in which in the midst of this, we buckle down and pursue the things we believe God is doing in his kingdom. And he will, he says, in a sense, take care of the rest. My friends, may we be filled with all joy and peace in believing by the power of his Holy Spirit so that we will overflow with hope as hope dealers. We sit in the midst of this community. We had a vision that we would build in the middle. We would be a growing church in the middle of this growing community that's literally being built around us. And that we would be a community church in the middle of this place as a beacon of hope. And while the world is without God and with hope and spirals into confusion and fear, we're inviting the church to rise up, to expand our capacity to bring hope to all people and to the next generation. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a global God, that you have loved the whole world and sent your only son to serve Israel, so that ultimately they could be a blessing and bring your gospel and your Savior to the very ends of the earth that all may see your glory and come to worship you. Father, I pray that we would be such a church dealing in this hope, the hope of the gospel, the hope that is ours in Christ. Father, would you fill us with such joy and peace we can't help ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.